0: Hello everybody and welcome to Documentation Not Included, a tech industry podcast presented by DNI Stream, the live knowledge repository for software professionals. It is Thursday at 7 o'clock BST, uh, BST, ooh, I haven't changed the script, it's GMT now isn't it, we've changed, Um, and we're live on twitch.tv forward slash DNI Stream. I'm your host Chris Seabock and today I'm joined by a new guest, uh, Frank Ray, so hello Frank, please introduce yourself, tell our listeners. Hi everyone.
1: What you do. Oh, I'm very glad to be here. Um, I'm nobody special. I'm just a software engineer that's written code for 20 years. Um, is it particularly good code? I don't know. Um, maybe, but um, I've been in the industry long enough, and I've seen many things going from project to project. And um, you know, I hit up Chris and asked if I could come on here and have a bit of a chat, and hopefully uh, share something useful with you guys.
0: Indeed, um, Frank and I have been chatting on LinkedIn for quite a few months, maybe a year. Can't remember now when we we connected yeah, up. A while ago. We've got quite a lot in common, um, and uh, we've got, we're always responding to each other's posts. So we obviously have some some things to talk about tonight. So, as always, hello to everybody in Twitch chat, and um, please do get involved. It is a live show. If you've got any questions, comments, queries, or uh, any, you need any clarity on anything, please just uh, post, and we'll uh, we'll get back to. Well, we'll we'll get you involved in the show uh, before we get going let's do our icebreaker question and this is just a question that we ask our guests just to get things going just to and it's not always technical but um and today to, josie normally comes up with a minor rubbish so i'm sorry about this frank but we we'll, uh, i'll do my best um so oh and uh, keep this clean by okay the way. <laughs> keep, keep this clean um what was the first thing <laughs> you thought about when you woke up this morning
1: Oh, long pause. You know what? I think I felt like I'd been hit by a bus. (laughs) (laughs) Drinking the not been. I haven't (laughs) been sleeping the last two nights. No, 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 no. A little bit under the weather. I just lied in bed and the body felt like (laughs) impossibly heavy. Yeah. So the mine wasn't even turned on, Chris. There you go.
0: Fair enough. I mean, it's not. I mean, I'm, I've been. I've not been sleeping too well either. Because, I, as I said to you just before the show, I've been looking for a new house, so I've got all kinds of things on my mind. Plus, there are things with work that I'm. I'm always thinking about work, but I tend do tend to be able to shut off. But there's things going on at work. There's, you know, there's the house move. Is is haven't done it for 16 years that's a
1: thing of nightmares even at the best of times
0: when i moved in here it's my first house when i moved in here um and having a seller house as well as buy a house is is an absolute nightmare this morning the first thing that i thought of was it was house related because we've seen some houses that we might like but we're constantly going back and forth about well is that bathroom big enough does it need work on it is this the is the price right for that so that's what i was thinking about the second i woke up <laughs> Not particularly interesting, but you know, it's, uh, it's it's to get us going. So, on to today's show. Uh, we've entitled this "Quality Counts," um, and quality is is one of my core values as a developer in my professional world and personally as well. You know, I don't like to. What's that phrase? Um, um, Spent. I've. You like forgotten the word? I've got forgotten the phrase for it. But anyway, um, I, I I like to design. You know, my code and design my software and my architectures uh, with quality first in mind. Um, and when I buy things from my hobbies, you know, it's yep. a microphone, yep. it's a quality microphone. I like to buy good quality things. And it's, a, it's key to, to, you know, to the, my decision-making process. Um, that was it. I'm a big believer in doing it right instead of doing it twice, if you know what I mean. I, I like to make sure I get it right yep. the first time and, you know, spend time, spend effort on it. Um, but I'm also aware that quality is quite a subjective thing as well it it depends on the situation it's not always it's not always objective it's not always a, a way for us to to measure some or the, or the measure of quality isn't always the same either so it's going to be interesting to get somebody else's opinion on what you know what is quality and especially when it comes to you know one of my passions which is software quality um, so let's start with the question frank just to get us going. So what would you... I love I love giving my guests, like, the, the broadest, <laughs> most difficult question to answer to start off with. Um, so what would you consider the most important element that helps with quality when designing or working with a piece of software? I know this should be a summary point. Well, Chris, you
1: know, it's... <laughs> I mean, it's a bit, its a big point, but you know what we don't realise is I—I uh, I nominated the topic of quality, and then actually thought I'd made an absolute hell of a mistake, and uh, I regretted the choice. And I, I tell you why, because because when I actually thought about it, you know, the only reason I suggested that is you know I've done a recent project uh, where we did lots of testing um, and built this kind of platform. I thought, oh, that'd be cool. Come on and kind of talk about that on the show, and then we had the quality word, but you know i realized that actually i don't think i know very much about quality right <laughs> and of all the training and certifications i've done absolutely nothing on testing but when i really thought about it actually for me i could see that in in my mind quality is more related to being able to understand the the big picture um and what this thing needs to do the operating constraints uh, the requirements the kinds of users um you know uh, trends it's 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 can you take the macro view first and kind of, you know, see the entire ocean? But then the trick of, the, trick of it is not to then try and boil the ocean. You've got to kind of throw away all of the things that aren't particularly material to end up with a quality product. And that is a hugely subjective, hugely subjective task. But I think perhaps for me, I've just largely gone along learning it subjectively or learning it as part of a craft. Which is why I kind of, my mind went blank and I thought, what am I going to say about quality? Hmm. So it's in there, but I think maybe other people have a very different approach to it. I don't know. Um, but that's what, what I've got to say about it.
0: From, from, I mean, from my years of experience I, and working with lots and lots of different clients of all, you know, a whole range of small SMEs to, to conglomerates, quality delivery of quality when we talk about software specifically or software systems and I'm talking about maybe software delivery systems like DevOps systems and things like that. It varies massively and yep. pragmatism comes into any kind of quality decision um a lot of the time. I'm I my own personal quality standards are quite often much higher than a manager's um, and and I'll, I'll explain why I'm not having a, a bash at managers or or a non-technical persons or a, or somebody who like who's in maybe in a CTO role who's got different pressures and different uh, different views yep. of what needs to be done. When I say I'm going to deliver some software for one of my clients, I know that I will deliver that based on the requirements that they give me to an extremely high level you know, the high degree of quality because of the way that I develop and the the the, the techniques that I've developed over the years. I'm talking about specifically things like yeah, test-driven okay. development, you know, writing tests, making sure that I know the requirements up front, making sure that I, I, I design and architect my code in such a way that I know the inputs and the outputs and almost the innards of the methods or the classes or whatever I'm writing is almost non inconsequential, as long as I know that given these inputs and this yeah, particular okay. variation of inputs, this is what I expect for an output, or this is the operation that I expect to happen. Yeah, okay. Yep. And for me, that has, taking that mindset, taking that TDD kind of mindset for me, <clears throat> has increased the quality of my code and the quality of delivery and the maintenance behind that code in an insurmountable way i get very i'm not saying it's perfect but i get very very few bugs come back and if i get a bug most of the time it's because the requirements haven't been quite right or they've not explained something to me in the right way yep so uh, do you do you yep, practice tdd that. do you is that a, is that something that you you value as a do quality know, driver
1: do you know it's funny it's funny, Chris. Um, let me answer it without just a kind of straight yes and no kind of black white answer. Is my my feeling is you're probably a better coder than I am, right? Um, probably, and I tell you why, because what I've realised is, you know, we may ha- we may have similar years in the industry, but a lot of my development work was in like literally rolling six month contracts. So, you know, we we can both say we're contractors, but to be honest, I think I've been lesser, uh, less a less close to the coalface than perhaps someone who's like literally making their bread and butter from it. You know, it's, it's a bit of a lazy for a large part of my career is a bit of a lazy approach to coding. So, but what I, I'll tell you when I, there was a defining moment, a couple, but this was this, a couple similar, but the defining moment was basically when I made a mistaken release of this kind of front office kind of like trading system and I took the entire thing down this was luckily this was like halfway through my career not recently <laughs> I took the entire thing down um, in the most catastrophic of way and and I survived that was fine and actually I learned a hell of a lot it's really good not at the time but <laughs> what I started to see was I started to see software and technology as a liability not an asset oh yeah and and then I think my focus it didn't, I, my focus wasn't, okay, let's take TDD and learn how to do TDD because I want to be a better quality coder. My, I almost just simply became risk averse. And I think that's primarily what drove my quality interest, which was if I don't understand something, if I can't test something, if I can't kind of, you know, uh, quantify something, if I can't reproduce something, then for me, the quality flag goes straight up. So in answer to yes I practice TDD um I don't do a TDD first I I may basically build quality in some other way um but that said from a new build I'd be doing TDD first it's it's maintaining brownfield applications it's kind of that's when it gets a bit tricky yeah but um I would I would want that and perhaps a safety net of a whole range of other kind of practices and tools and processes and and understanding um, to also be part of the quality kind of net, if that makes sense. Yeah.
0: I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, TDD isn't the only thing that I, mean, that, that I practice. You know, the years no, of, of experience and the, you know. I'd, a lot of coders and a lot of developers um, in general, in my experience, and again, I'm not saying everybody has this this view, but they will rely on other people. They will, especially in something like a waterfall process, they will hand off, to a quality team, to the QA team, to UAT testing, yep. and they will be like, "Right, it's done now. My part's done. Let's let's get it over to them." And a lot of the time, the actual effort that's put into the, the the requirements, the understanding of the requirements, which I think is a key thing. If you do not know the answer to a question or the answer to you know what an actual requirement is, asking another question until you get to a point where you fully understand why you're implementing this code, not just how to implement it, but why you're implementing it. And that improves your quality. Because you, even if you don't write tests, you can write a better chord base, you know? Um
1: but you know what's interesting on that point, Chris? I mean, I don't know if this is the same everywhere, but I'm old enough to remember when I started off coding like literally as a graduate there wasn't a business analyst sat in front of me and a a qa team behind me you know you would basically front up to the client and you know you knew that whatever you built you're going to be responsible for testing it and putting in production and if it didn't work they'd come knock on your door i that's probably not true everywhere but that you know so the first 10 years of the life was of coding life was as an analyst developer so maybe i just took that for granted but i always saw the full cycle of it even including the kind of, you know, testing and then production. And they call that DevOps now, but it wasn't, mm. it was just you're a coder and, you know, you're building some kind of software. So I think maybe naturally having that kind of exposure, you you would start to think more about the supportability of it, even if no one's mentioned it. It's just, you know, what's coming down the line later.
0: I mean, I've had I've had two uh, major hiccups similar to what you um, said just a minute ago. Yeah. Um, Two similar hiccups in my career that that taught me lessons, and you know, they taught me two main lessons. One was I distinctly remember the day I was running, uh, I recreated a SQL Server stored procedure on a live database, and the way that the code had been written, which I hadn't written, the code that connected to the database. It was basically a persistent connection because it was a TCP socket, and back then. And I don't know if it applies now, but if you recreate, as in you drop and then recreate a a stored procedure, not just use the recreate flag, um, it basically isn't available to the old uh, to any old connections. It had to be, and this brought down a warehouse that was putting, you know, like. 1.2 1.2 million pounds worth of stuff through uh, every 30 minutes, you know, for a couple of <laughs> oh hours. God. That taught me never to touch a production system, you know. That taught me one big lesson. And that yeah. was, that. I mean, yeah. you know, learning that, you don't know that as a junior developer. And another one was I did a DBA a favor. He went into a meeting and he said, oh, can you just run this script on this server? And I did. And it worked. It was fine. It was all okay. <laughs> But at the time, I happened to be writing, because I'm a developer and we like to automate everything, I happened to be writing a script that sequentially, this is a T-SQL, there's both SQL problems, I'm, weirdly. Um, I, I wrote a T-SQL script that looped through all of the Sys uh, databases, um, all of the Sys tables rather, oh, okay. and basically dropped every single index, every single column, every single table, every single every entity within the database and then recreated it i was running it for my development purposes f5 f5 you know runs in seconds in in the development environment pressed dragged it into the wrong window pressed f5 it was taking a second (laughs) 10 seconds hang on oh realized which database it was running on finance database for an entire district of the country um, for uh, I'm not going to tell you, but it was for you know it was for a no, someone where it mattered, right? Quite, quite. Anyway, and I ran into meetings and held my hand up and stuff. I've told people on this uh, stream that that story before, but my lord, you know you learn from those mistakes and you learn. I, that- you
1: know what. As you, were, as you were saying that, I, I was actually physically feeling how <laughs> sick I was when I did, um, I did exactly the same thing. I did it twice, except this other time, we caught it about three seconds before the SSIS job was going to run. But I remember that it was like being seasick that 's how I felt it, in the pit of my stomach for
0: me it 's the pit of the stomach feeling, and then a, a really hot flush that rises all the way up your body, and oh, I remember doing it, and it was two minutes before it the was a two hour incremental backup on the database, two minutes before the next backup. but luckily, the meeting that the DBA was in was the meeting that the entire finance department were in, so luckily i 'd only lost about thirty minutes' worth of data, which was more than it should have done, but anyway. Live and learn, but yeah, the quality-wise, though, if we go back, get back to the quality subject. It's if there were if there were quality controls in place to stop people like me running scripts like that on live databases, then that probably wouldn't have happened. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things you can put yep. in place for that.
1: So, so you know what's you know what's one, interesting on that point. Just before we move on. Is like you know when did I get interested in continuous integration? Well, not for the sake of continuous integration as a buzzword or something to put onto the CV was after the catastrophic error, what similar thing I did to the database was what I did, the very next thing I did was I, for all database changes, basically we'd do patches. So, you know, we'd, we'd, you know, we're basically doing alter statements to the production database, but then what we've got is a, basically a, production schema setting in the, the test environment that we just load with dummy data. And then we would apply the patches over the top of that sequentially. Mm-hmm. So then we kind of, we're testing the patches. Um, so then I wrote the script so you could basically, there was a simple versions table sitting in the database. So, you know, if you've got, if you've got just a patch number 14, the database is at 13, you can roll it forward and back just from a command line script. My interest in CI then was how am I going to run it? Well, eventually I ended up putting it into a build server. Basically, and got the build server. So then I'm not the one clicking the kind of you know command line running it, um, and that was my very first introduction into CI for that purpose. I think um, it hasn't changed much actually. CI
0: specifically has been happening well before it was a buzzword. We were well before continuous integration was a thing that we used to use, as, you know, to to describe one part of DevOps. You know, before yeah. DevOps was a buzzword as well. But I think. Continuous integration, In when we look at that as quality, uh, look look at it under the, the microscope of quality, for me, I have actually introduced it into one of my clients recently. Um, they wanted it, they knew what it was, and they understood it to an extent, but I still had to kind of sell it to them and explain to them the kind of things that would be available. But before they see it, they don't really understand it fully, you know, because they were completely outside yeah, of that world. Right. They'd never yep. seen it. So when you start putting things in place and start showing demos, et cetera, And the developers, the key thing, when the developers start using it and other members of the team, such as the QA department and the stakeholders, can actually see things happening, the fact that a CI process is in place with that's running tests, that's compiling the software, that's making sure that somebody hasn't broken something, combined with a good branching pattern, a branching strategy, as long as you, again... Yeah. Um, adopt yep, right. that kind of thing. It depends on the size of your team, the, the strategy, but um, and your release processes and all kinds of things. But basically, seeing that we've gone from people being afraid to push code in a it distrib- in, in a centralized so, um, source code situation to people pushing twenty or thirty times a day and getting feedback from their builds and immediately being able to fix them and know that they've broken the integration. Yep. And, Combine it with things like rebasing in Git as well, which means that they're pulling other people's code into their branches. They're not affecting the uh, develop or the master branch or whatever branch you work in, um, or main branch these days, I think. Um, And the fact that that's happening so regularly, the fact that when somebody runs something and it breaks in one of the integration tests or it breaks a couple of the unit tests because they've modified code and they didn't think about who else is using it, That is a massive win for quality for me i mean it's a huge thing i'm talking to the preaching to the converted here i'm pretty sure of that but it's just looking at at this one particular client 12 months ago they were petrified they had it's not just not just quality that's improved it's also resilience because they now have they now yeah. push the code a lot more regularly and they're not you know that they're at less risk of their computer failing or a hard drive failing and them losing what's on that computer while, you know, the the, the central server's got it. It's because they don't want to push centrally because nobody's you know, everyone's scared to because they might break somebody else's code. It's wonderful. I, I love it.
1: The irony is that you know, probably more frequent releases of smaller scale in an automated fashion is actually improving their quality and uh, reducing you know the kind of downsides to
0: it. yeah absolutely um so how do you feel about the how do you feel about quality testing you know qa quality assurance and you obviously have experience of it not necessarily doing it but handing off to or being involved in qa teams how what i suppose what is your experience and how do you feel about that in general as a process
1: um Well, what I've noticed is a trend in the last, say, 18 months whereby there's more and more like automation uh, tester kind of roles being kind of advertised or coming up. or And it seems to be that basically those automation testers are basically just software developers or engineers who are doing instrumentation and kind of like setting up the platforms. Um, that for me is a, I wouldn't have imagined it would kind of come so rapidly. Well, whatever, maybe it's to do with the cloud native kind of you know adoption kind of mm. but um that looks like a really kind of good good step forward um and actually you know would i hang up my kind of everyday developer hat to do more of that i probably would I, I i see i see i mean it's still coding right but it's kind of like coding the kind of platform around to keep you know and enabling the kind of other developers to you know have that kind of good cadence um yeah. manual testing i think surely surely the days of manual testing have to be over i'm not saying that manual testers pack up and leave but surely the manual testing you're at least automating the kind of click-throughs within some kind of you know ui uh, framework and runners but you know th- th- like firing up excel sheets and writing kind of manuals I-, I can't think why how you could justify that at this point i just can't yeah.
0: the thing is it happens a lot still Especially yeah. in the older school, you know, companies. I have a client that does exactly that, and I'm desperately trying to get them to move away from that. Not necessarily move away, but augment that human interaction. Because I wouldn't trust no matter how many scripts you write, and what what the you know if you use Selenium or Eggplant or something like that to run the tests um, automatically. You know, run the click the browser or click the buttons and do all these things. I, for me there still has to be a, a, an element of a human checking over something because it's it's not just clicking things it's also checking that the requirements are, are right because a a system can't do that yep. at all and that's a quality thing because quality isn't just about being able to deliver working software that functions in the right way it's also about delivering what the end client wants which could be an internal you know com- uh, internal department or a stakeholder, or it could be an external client.
1: But isn't that interesting, Chris, because actually now we're starting to move on to, in my mind, slightly different, perhaps even more interesting, um, or on par, which is, you know, I think when I first, I was trying to remember when I first came across the idea of unit tests and and frameworks. It's long ago enough that I can't remember, But, and I think that my kind of idea was, this is great, we'll write unit tests for every piece of code. And if we write enough unit tests, we don't need to do any other testing. And I imagine that's probably a common view amongst people who come across testing, like for the first time. But, you know, now, like I did, I've done like a lot of Excel work recently um, in the last year. And it's funny with the Excel stuff you're, you're, you may put checks in to basically say, with this set of input, then we'd expect this set of output. So you're actually starting to put the box around the internal workings. So, so then you can start to make decisions about, well, maybe it's not cost effective or valuable enough to test everything in the middle. Maybe you want to do, you know, maybe it's the most complex, maybe it's the most dangerous. But in my mind, there's something about, you know, we're building software with the acknowledgement that actually, you know, I'm a liability here and I will make a mistake at some point. Um, the software is inherently kind of unreliable, you know, patches, platforms, things change. The end user is inherently unreliable. So there's something about, we know that something's going to go wrong, but we want to architect it in a way whereby when it does go wrong, it's not catastrophic to, you know, the business or the users. We want it to fail in a way that we've we've basically limited the danger in the way it's failed. And for me, that's probably the most, that's more important than perhaps anything we've talked about so far is the, that overarching, you know, have we invested the kind of safety nets in the right place such that we can fail and we can be kind of human in our kind of, you know, software craftsmanship. And I think that's a big difference. I've seen systems that were inherently unreliable and were very dangerous when they broke. And I've seen ones that are hugely unreliable and it was trivial in in the way that they broke. Hmm.
0: I am for reliable and when it does break if it does ever break which it does you know you can't catch every single potential exception and every single potential user interaction um and when it does break it's inconsequential Although there's a rollback yep. mechanism that, that undoes any damage that might have been done um, especially in in threaded scenarios and you know asynchronous op- um, operations and that kind of thing but it's yeah so it's interesting you say that so what can you give any more specific kind of examples of um, of that kind of uh, of the yeah, catastrophic I failures? I suppose.
1: Yeah, I can. So, um, you know, the application I'm I'm supporting currently that's I inherited. So, um, you know, there was one previous developer who'd built it and. Pretty much had kind of left for I don't know what reasons it doesn't matter, and just around the release of the first version. So it's basically a finance and application, uh, billing application. Um, it's for a small company, um, but there's still about uh, half a million pounds worth of invoices being put through it each month. So it's it's a business critical application, but for a small company. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my mind, it's as important as the kind of stuff I was doing in you know big banks because it's as it as as critical to the small company anyway you know the handover was a zipped up kind of source code that actually didn't compile and um, it didn't compile in a way that i'm pretty sure that it was halfway through a kind of feature change and part of it hadn't been checked in although there a check-in is in quotes there was no source control so I don't know why I took this one. To be honest,
0: um, I've, I've seen exactly the same situation a number of times. Either in when I've been, you know, I've worked for a, a big client and they've just got one piece of software that does that that works, is deployed, but the 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 source code, the code or something, never compiled, and no no developer has ever been able to get it com- to compile. So they just kind of patch it, you know, and and do what they can yeah, in a live system the with like SQL, usually SQL modifications. And I've seen other situations like you described there where. Oh, the developers. You know, we've, we, our relationship with the developers kind of fallen um, into into disrepair, so we've taken the source code. They've given us what they had at the moment in time, which is probably hashed together at the best, and it's not in source control. It's just yep. here you go. And I look at them kind of things and I say, right, happy to to kind of put a sticking plaster on this. But if you want me to support it, I will rewrite it. That is how I have, I approach. So here's those where things. I was a bit.
1: Here's where I was a bit green. Is I effectively ended up rewriting it, but pretty much um, mostly on my time. But um, let me tell you, it's interesting what what was problematic with this. So it it was a desktop application used by a handful of finance users and just a kind of database. Um, and so it was a port of a excel workbook which they're running their business on so in theory it's not a difficult application mm. like it's not a complicated app what i found was basically a uh, mysql database on a shared host um which is fine but because it was on a shared host someone had worked out that um you know some of the data was sensitive because it's bank accounts and billing details and stuff so we needed to protect that so What had happened is they decided to selectively encrypt some of the columns in the database, Mm -hmm. which is fine, except they hadn't used a version of a database where that's built into the platform. So they'd hand rolled their own encryption algorithm in the kind of code. And then they've stuck it, not as a cross-cutting concern in the web service, but literally like scattered throughout the code. So when for the first couple of months, the finance user would phone me up, I can't load the database. What do you mean? well like it won't load so what's happened is the data is corrupted such that the application is actually falling over won't even load but when i come to actually debug it i can't look in the database because i've got thousand character strings in pretty much every single column Mm -hmm. um so i've got to literally run it through the application and then debug it kind of when i'm running it which is like not great worst it got to a point where basically i decided i would Unencrypt the whole database and try and find a better hosting solution just to bring some transparency. I know that I shouldn't be working on production data anyway, but like we're so far away from the ideal. So I basically wrote a wrote an application to decrypt the whole database, and what I found is unfortunately the columns not all of the columns had been extended to be long enough for the encrypted strings, right. so you may have had like a thirty character field for a bank account number they've then literally encrypted it, stored it, and it 's truncated mm-hmm. so there's so no possible the way with where- yeah. and you know and then in amongst all of this there's a web service which you know typically it's a right pattern isn't it like client server and database but you know web service is typically in my view you're scaling it geographically something like that well that doesn't apply you know or you're kind of adding in security where they've just got plain text passwords going across a http you know unencrypted transport
0: you should come on one of our uh, developer stories <laughs> podcasts because we do these every now and again, where we just talk about you know nightmare scenarios that we've had to deal with. And I mean, I've I've had similar kind of not not the encryption one, thankfully, just but because that's just un- that's just you can't even you can't do anything about that. There's no it, way you can't totally even half mean you can't even get half of the data back in that situation, Mate. you know.
1: Mate.
0: But yeah, I mean, so.
1: So what Oh, how I, to Chris. I forgot. We're getting to quality, right?
0: Yeah, we are. So that's yeah. what, that's what I'm saying. How how do, do you deal with that situation? Did you say that you you just said that you're rewriting it in your own time?
1: No, no. I the biggest problem is this. So basically, um it and then the code so you know, the way it's architected, it's so complicated. Um, because of the, imagine the calculations being duplicated, triplicated five, six times, the same thing all around the place. But, and then you've got the kind of this encrypted database, and then you've got this kind of web service with, with hand roll, kind of, you know, encrypting of JSON and manually put, it's unsupportable in my mind. It's a brand new application, yet it's already legacy, it's end of life. Mm. And the biggest, the biggest problem with all of that is, you you can't effectively change any part of it and be confident that actually you're you're making things worse because you know it had been used for a number of months so like what do you do well in in my mind the first thing you basically do is very luckily that um the the the, uh, the ui is at mvc so there's view models well the very first thing i thought is i'll basically kind of effectively record the accountants using this platform to you know on a monthly basis and I'll work out how they're driving it through the kind of UI Mm. and then I'll effectively encode that. So I've got my bunch of inputs. And then what I'll basically do is take the output files it's generating and I'll do some funky stuff with dates so that kind of it's always current and things like that. But I'll effectively wrap it in this kind of here's the inputs, here's the outputs. And then, you know, given it's a relatively simple system in the way it's dealing with the numbers, you know, let's say there's 10 different kind of scenarios about the kind of static data. I will then basically code those 10 sort of input scenarios, drive it through the kind of clicks through the application and then validate the output. And until and then. And then all of that needs to be done in a kind of automated fashion. So like, here's a database, okay, tear it down, create the tables, put the dummy data in there. Okay. Run the unit tests and then rinse and repeat for the nine other scenarios. And so what I went back to the, the client was until we've done this, there's effectively nothing. There's no maintenance that effectively can be done. And anything will be done comes with no warranty, just to make sure you can load up the kind of application. Mm. Um, I've, Personally, I, it's an interesting project, which is why I wanted to do it. There was a lot of good value, but personally, I felt a bit sorry for them because I, they weren't close enough to what the kind of what they'd purchased. That's they, a, they really didn't know.
0: That's a problem a lot of the time. I, mean, I tend to choose clients that have a technical um, investment in the product. You know, they usually have some technical staff. They usually yep. have at least some understanding. Like the one, of the ones I'm working with at the moment. There's, there's five or six directors all of them are coders to some extent you know with with the exception of one of them who's like the business person but they generally they understand what I'm doing they question me often because I've got um a wider experience than they kind of do if you know what I mean that, that I I Tend to, yeah, they're
1: probably learning from
0: you. Yeah, well, they are definitely. I mean, a part of the contract is teaching and training and uh, and mentoring um, both yep. them and the uh, like their junior developers. So, basically, the it's it's rewarding for me because I get to kind of I get to t- um, brush up on my on my training skills, but also it's very rewarding for them because they are definitely seeing value in what I'm doing because I write code, and then I explain it to them. I've actually introduced things like code reviews as well, which is another quality um, quality control that you can introduce into teams of developers. Not quite the same as what you're talking about there, because you're on your yep. own. But in a team of developers, code reviews are just introducing them. They instantly help you clarify. Because, I mean, for example, um, I'm working with one other senior developer on something at the moment. Uh, we split the work you know we've, we've architected the system or I've architected the system in such a way that it's easy for us to split things up you know so he does one part yeah, okay. of it and I do the other and, uh, other parts of it. I go off and write bits on my own he goes off and writes bits on it we've agreed the interfaces between each other so we know kind of what we need to send and receive between each other, but basically the actual implementation we do independently yep. so he goes off and writes something and I go off and write something and he'll uh, get the architecture wrong he'll um he won't make his code dry or he won't write enough unit tests or he won't he won't cover all potential use cases in his in the code base whereas I'll get the requirements wrong okay. so when we do a code review of the two okay. not necessarily the two together we might do them independently, but when we do the code review he will say to me, well, that doesn't cater for this particular business requirement or this requirement that I know of, which I don't know because I'm not privy to the entire set of requirements for the end client. I'm just privy make to sure. the bits that they asked me to do. Um, and then I will, I will look at his code and I will quality check it and make sure that he's covering null checks and make sure he's using better patterns and he's created the right you know, interfaces and he's he's written his tests in the right way because a lot of the time, how you write tests also makes a massive difference to the quality of those tests. If you start seeing tests that... Are f- if it's a unit test, for example, you start seeing... You change one line of code and 600 tests are failing. That They aren't unit tests. They are badly written unit tests, if you know what I mean. They are... You should only be seeing one or two tests fail if, you, um, if you're writing proper, true unit uh, tests, okay. if you change a tiny little bit of code. But... The problem is, is a lot of people don't focus on that. They do. they just want to they want to hit this hot this magical number of uh, of code coverage whereas i don't even think about code coverage i bet my code coverage is 150% you know the way that i write code because i'm very defensive but i couldn't <laughs> care less about that figure it could be 70% i've covered all of the use cases that are important for the you know for the code that, how it's going to be used and i also treat everything as an independent piece of code yes, so yeah. you know um but it's, th- i think that's another thing to to bear in mind that even if if you're allowed to for ND, you know, obviously we we do sign NDAs and we can't share our code with everybody. If you're allowed to, code reviews are extremely um, rewarding, and you you build a thicker skin through it as well as a developer. Because, do you know what's
1: interesting, Chris? You've go on. sorry, you've you've touched upon something I think is really important here. Is when I See, funny enough, I trained as a hardware engineer originally. And then by the time I graduated, the industry had pretty much was starting to dry up in Australia. So, you know, I just accepted the first job I could get, which was, you know, with Honeywell. And it was on a software, it was a a graduate rotation program. So basically, you're a trainee for two years. So this is after university. And I think in the first kind of formative years, so let's say the first five years, Largely, a lot of what I still do day to day and how I code, I actually was basically taught by someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you. I see a lot online, which is about you know like learn to code or coding's easier or get started. But I would have to say that you know I think my unit testing is probably a lot weaker than my coding, right? Simply because my coding was I was taught to, to um, program C Mm-hmm. You know, and I found that really difficult, ATL, MFC, you know, I still remember the Hungarian, you know, LPSTR, long pointer to, you know, null terminated string, you know, oh, that's Malik, all, French all this to me. stuff. I'm, I'm not a so C++ when I, guy, but go on. When I got to C sharp, that, that just seemed like a holiday compared to how I started. But th- what was important was I didn't learn this stuff by myself. Mm. you know it was basically someone so you know the patterns and practices i remember the chap who basically said here's a book of patterns. what's that what what are software patterns and here it is everything i've learned in the you know in terms of my stock standard coding so even when i'm coding the kind of web stuff you know in like typescript which is contemporary that's still coded in a way that i was taught all those years ago Mm. and i think the 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 unit testing aspect is that came after the point where I was working in those kind of collaborative teams. I was more pretty much by myself. That's more self-taught. But when I look back, I think it's for me personally, maybe it's something about how how I learn. but it's not of the same robust. I mean, I'm asking myself here, but you know, it, it needs some investment and I think it's hard to do some of this stuff by yourself, you know, as a loner every day, all day. It, it's really tough.
0: I picked up unit testing um, when I worked for an insurance company many, many years ago because it was a requirement of the job, and I picked it up from other contractors. And I, at the time, I had really no idea what I was doing or why I was doing it. I just kind of embraced it as something that n- I needed to be able to know. You know, I needed yeah, to know okay. to yep. do my job. I, within a few months, it clicked with me why it was so important and how useful it is. Not just for me. Sorry, not just for the you know the people who want me to do the, the coding, but also for myself yep. it's yep. my yep. own it's me checking myself i I'm at a point now where i don't have to write because of the the quality of my code or the, the the methods in which I use and the architectures that I put together i don't have to write unit tests because most of my code will work. however, I am constantly catching myself out. Constantly catching when I've done a less than or equal to when I should have just done a less than, or yeah, when I'm yeah. checking dates yep. against each other and I'm I'm not quite doing it right. Or, but the tests, yep. writing the tests yep. first, they catch all of that. When I've you know I've accidentally not done a check for a null in in, in a particular instance. There's all kinds of things that a defensive programmer like myself thinks they check, but they we don't. And the tests make sure that we do that. And and it's a quality check. And yes, there's a, there's an argument to say that you know a suite with thousands and thousands of tests in it is useless over time. But when you're writing the code, it's extremely yeah. important for me. But after that, once it's been deployed and people, are, it's never going to get modified again, or, or is unlikely to get modified again. It's part of a core framework that's you know solid and, and is is very. It's not particularly robust. Then you can delete the tests. But I don't tend, still don't tend to do that because they're cheap, you know? Maintaining them isn't as cheap, but if you write your unit tests properly as proper unit tests, the maintenance actually becomes a, a really arbitrary kind of refactoring job that takes a few minutes, you know? Um, and if yep. you use a, a good refactoring tool, then you, you've got even less work to do there. So.
1: so, you know, it's funny, on that point, you know, that example of the application I'm supporting, you know, it, it's... I think it's going to be continually be problematic because while we basically managed to do the kind of integration tests, you know, unbox it, that let me unencrypt the database, move it to a proper hosting provider, get rid of the web service layer. I still had some confidence, but I've only got say 10 different scenarios. Mm -hmm. You know, I've built a few things around the edges, a few extra reports and stuff. The real problem is to do any kind of serious development on it, you're changing the kind of internals. And there 's bugs already in the code, so the input output equation, although we 've kind of boxed that there 's problems with some of the kind of numbers in terms of rounding and stuff, so it 's not actually accurate when you come and touch something on in on you know inside that end to end process, the code isn 't structured in a way where i it is easy to add in unit tests at this point yeah so you 're still effectively coding blind and i and even though i 've kind of thrown away a lot of the code. Because the calculations are distributed, I haven't then touched that because that's actually where the kind of, you know, real risk is. And yet it's distributed in a way that it, it's impossible to unit test. So and that- unfortunately, that's a legacy I think that's going to kind of live on until, you know, a proper version, what, three of this application is really started. And I think that might just be the user screens and then everything behind it brand new, perhaps.
0: I think when I, when I am presented, and this happened ex- exactly this way with uh, again one of my clients, I did a, a big migration over the last year um, of not just code but also their development practices and, and movement of their source control as well. Um, but this this at the moment we we're in the middle of migrating from kind of an old kind of mono. Uh, mono application or whatever you call them, monolithic application uh, which is nothing wrong with monolithic applications in the right way but we've, we've migrated from that into lots of reusable testable code. There's an argument to say that you do a lot of work to make Tuck c- uh, code testable but also there's an argument to say that by making it testable you also make it easy to maintain and you make it easy to reuse as well um, so, yes, wh- yeah. one one thing I would suggest with your, I don't know the, the code base, but one thing that struck me when you were talking is that when Go I'm on. presented with this big class or, or something, a big load of a load of code that does something complicated or does lots of complicated things, a mono class, a god class, yep. whatever, I tend to look at the individual parts of it. So, say there's a particular if statement that does something. What I'll do is I'll take out the content of that if statement, and I will abstract it and make it a dependency. So you're calling that dependency as an interface. So if you are aware or or practice solid, that is the... um, It's not just the inversion principle, but it's also also the uh, depend on abstractions, not on concrete implementations. So if you depend on the abstraction you can reuse that abstraction elsewhere. Yes, you will need to register it and inject it somewhere. And that injection may be a concrete injection somewhere else, so you might have to new it up outside of the class that you inject inject it into. But it immediately makes it reusable. And that's the first step to refactoring something. At some point in the future, you then remove... you You introduce IOC and you remove the news, all of the instantiations in the code, and you move them into the IOC container. So... The, the, you know the dependency injection can handle all of that and it can handle the scoping of objects and everything else and it's a it's an ongoing problem with the work I'm doing for this particular client at the moment but and it's an ongo- it's it's a hard sell as well to people who don't understand or, or don't use dependency injection but I'm actually getting through to people after months and months of doing it and they're really starting to understand why it's useful and how you you know even though it's a complete foreign concept. This ILC container that registers everything and magically, and then you just can access everything. <laughs> you need to access everything somewhere else. It's it's wonderful when you understand it. When you don't understand it, it's like well, you're just abstracting it and making it harder to follow and, and get through. You know. But again, with that's the right really tools, interesting. It's, it's an interesting where to work.
1: Yeah, sorry. I just had a pe- I had a penny dropping moment. Like you know, it it's so it's so yeah. obvious. I don't know why I didn't see it, but um. Yeah, by starting to extract stuff in that kind of way, you're you're, you're effectively refactoring it without changing the functionality. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this kind of thing over here in your, you know, uh, concrete implementation of the interfaces that effectively you're kind of, I, yeah, it's one way to basically split your, and abstract out of classes.
0: You're it's abstracting, isolating, and also at the same time, you are making it reusable. And also testable as well, because if you move it out, let's say, for example, let's say you've got six methods that all call the private method, all call the private method, and and, and that, that's a, a fairly decent abstraction already to start off with, right? Yep. All six of those methods call this private method, and you're like, that private method does something, re- it's got a really complicated calculation in it, it's doing something very distinct, I want to use it in another class. So why not just pull the private method out, make it a method in another class, uh, create an interface for it, inject the interfaces in both the classes that you want to use it in, and for now, new it up where it needs to be injected, but and then later on worry about how you go about inverting the control. And you're also... I'm, yeah, I'm going to do just that. Do it. It's and, and I'd like to see the code as well. I've got, I've got examples of that kind of thing all over in my, in my GitHub. Um, I could do
1: that because the calculations are in about five different places I've documented, but they're the same calculation, you know, just performed ad hoc in the report or whenever it's needed. So actually, it's a perfect use case.
0: Exactly. And even if you've got copied and pasted parts, you can do the same thing because a lot of the time I see, uh, and and this is, again, evident in the code base for this client I keep talking about, they've got slight modifications of exactly the same code and you can see that somebody's copied it, pasted it, and changed one line at some point. There's all kinds of patterns that you can use for that kind of thing. There's all kind of like there's you could use a delegate. You can use a lambda call to to that one line that's changed that might call a different store procedure or might call a different method or it might do something quite funky throw it into a delegate and and call that method with a delegate call. It's it's you you learn this over the years and that improves. Let's go back to it. We're going to have to stop the show now by the way, but it's going back to it. It's all about quality that That improves the quality of the code base, and it therefore improves the quality and the maintenance and the sustainability, sustainability is the wrong word, but you know what I mean, the the ability of of you to be able to deliver quality software to to your
1: clients. Do I have time to share my copy and paste nightmare?
0: Go on, then. Go on, then.
1: Uh, My first job in banking, we were replacing this incumbent application. So ASP application, do you know where basically the the URLs are all like dot, dot, slash and relative summer hard bangs? There's about 300 pages in it. Source control, someone in the past had taken a copy of all 300 pages and then pasted it as a subdirectory in the site and then accidentally had done it one more so there's about 900 pages and because there's all relative locations they've been maintaining it whereby when they make a change to one form they've had to find all the, the other two copies of the form because they can't be sure it's not being called from another thing and they've yep. been running it for anyway
0: again i've seen that exact problem and i'm i'm the kind of developer that looks at something and I use I use um for for anything C sharp and anything back end I use Visual Studio and I use Visual Studio rather than Visual Studio Code because the tools in it for that particular job are miles better than Visual Studio Codes. It's not mature yeah, enough okay. Visual Studio Code for that. It's great for front end work and I love it for front end work. It's just not mature enough for um there's a lot more things in, in Visual Studio that help us, but I also use something called ReSharper, which is from JetBrains, which you probably heard of. Maybe you haven't. Don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but ReSharper is an absolutely wonderful refactoring tool. Also, a brilliant extension to Visual Studio in general. And when you learn how to use it, I mean, I'm still picking little bits up. There's always new features that come in. You know, some, I found out something today which I could have used from BWay or B actually, um, that, um, that allows me to add an inherit doc. Uh, uh, IntelliSense uh, comment just by using a keystroke which I I do, I type them in all the time but I, I particularly this one particular thing just saved me a lot of time, you know but it's got all kinds of things built into it I have got 100% confidence that when I refactor something in, using ReSharper that it will pick up all potential references and do so I, I'm renaming things all the time I delete whole swathes of code like I'll, what well, sometimes I'll just do a branch. I'll delete a ton of code and I'll see what breaks, and 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 that okay. makes so many people nervous because I'm in, I, nothing is on. You can do, undo everything as long as you've saved. You know where you are with a yep. commit or something like that. You can undo anything you want. And
1: yep. I, honestly, yeah, I, I
0: love I love having a screen share with one of like the oldest older school developers and and doing this because I'm you know like you know like sometimes your grandparents will be you know watching you you do something on the on a computer or on a on a tablet or something and be like you're going too fast you're going too fast it feels a little bit like that sometimes because i know my tools so well that i'm i'm dashing around and i'm like i'm deleting things and i'm going just just get rid of it just, just get on to that right there's this next thing i'm not quite as um, fast as i am in the podcast when i you know i do explain things slowly and carefully and, and tell them why i'm doing things but I do things so confidently that people are just, you can hear them going in the background, What
1: are you doing? I
0: love it. I love it. It's brilliant.
1: I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to see that actually. (laughs) I I think if you
0: know the code as well, and there's a lot of people who are scared to change legacy code bases because, as you said, you know, you've demonstrated throughout the whole podcast, it, it is a scary thing. But there's also experimentation. You know, as long as I know what it's supposed to do and what it might break. There might be some edge cases, but I'll just undo my commit. I've got the code somewhere, yep. you know. Yep. I'll undo it. But my refactors are—I just refactor everything, you know. Today, I—I I rewrote a ton of classes that somebody had written uh, years ago because it made more sense to do it that way. So I'm just not afraid. But experience helps there as well. So, and I'm—I'm I'm very confident in C Sharp as well. I'm not as confident in things like JavaScript, even though I'm—I'm I'm more than. Used to it, it's just the refactoring tools aren't quite as good in, in those languages, so um,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: okay, Actually. so let us move on then. So, we're going to move on to the final section of our show. Um, we uh, I'd like to say thank you to everybody in Twitch chat. There's been a few, well, there's voltrat has been chatting and asking a few questions or commenting a few times. I have seen you, Volstrat it's just we've been, been uh, we've been chatting and uh, there's a few, few, few little comments, nothing. Nothing to mention, though. Thank you very much, Valshrat. Valshrat's a, a regular listener, by the way. Um, but we, we are at the end of the show. Before we go, though, we'll do our BYOM, which is our Bring Your Own Manual. Um, we changed it for an R- from an RTFM years ago, uh, so we wanted to make it a little bit more positive than having a rant, because um, we've we've done that for, for long enough. <laughs> um, so our BYOM is where we just talk about something we've learned. It doesn't have to be uh, technical. It doesn't have to be... Um, geeky. It can be anything at all, any little fact that you've learned. So I'll, I'll let you go first, Frank, if you've got one prepared.
1: Well, I've, you know, I had eight years out of coding when I went into project management and business analysis. I was thoroughly burnt out from just sitting behind a desk coding. Um, and I thought I hated coding. Well, you know, I've come back and I love it. The reason why I love it, it's got nothing to do with technology and the coding, it is you know, I worked in big corporates without without the, the amount of control I needed over what I'm building. Now I'm building stuff under my own steam and I can put my name against it and guarantee that there's going to be a quality outcome. So, And it was a bit of a shame. It took eight years to work out that actually it was the environment and the circumstances that was just making me unhappy as a kind of software engineer. So that's a really really big learning and um, I'm glad it, you know, finally happened.
0: I'm glad it is as well. I I I kind of used to feel the same. Even when I used to contract, when I used to do some more kind of regular contracts, you know, for insurance companies and banks and things like that. You're just still just a number and you're still kind of doing what they need you to do, you know? But now the way that I consult is I'm very much going trying to solve my, my clients' problems and explain to them that yep. what I can and can't do and and i 'm confident in my delivery of what I can do, and when they hand over to me, they essentially hand over to me and I am fully responsible for that work. You know if yes, something goes yeah. massively wrong with the things that i 'm doing it 's my responsibility. I fix it if something goes particularly well, I like it when they say thank you to me. you know I had yes, a, yeah. a moment the other day where I solved a problem for one of my clients who um, they were struggling to convince one of their end clients that a particular solution was the right way to go, and I came into the meet this six-hour meeting that they were having for about five minutes, explained the position, explained the technical ins and outs, and it and it afterwards they they just showered, I say showered three or four people from the the my client sent me a message afterwards and said thank you very much for that Chris you've you know you've really helped you know, and it was just really nice feeling to have that and I like having. I like praise. Everyone likes praise. but I also like having you know. Ha- I like making my clients happy and their life easier. Equally, I don't like making their life harder. And I, you know, we're not all perfect. Sometimes we do do that with the things that we do as consultants, but we try. I try not to. You know, I try and be objective as I as I can. Um, yeah, so I'm glad of yeah. that. I'm glad of yeah, that. That's so why we get out of bed. In, 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 indeed, yeah. Um, so my BYOM um, is I learned today that I've been using I've been using a pattern from the Gang of Four book for years and I realized that I now have a name for it because I I don't know why something happened in the last couple of days that I connected the fact that I've been using this pattern and I knew that I know it's a great pattern, and I think it's particularly applicable in certain circumstances. Um, and, and I've been using it for years for various different reasons. And I've always been calling it things like the adapter pattern or the um, I think I think the adapter is or a service pattern or something like that. Or the service locator. It's neither of them. They're all, they've all got the, their own uses. But this one is the strategy pattern, and the strategy pattern is. a, a, a in a, at a high level, at least. Anyway, the strategy pattern is the ability to alter the implementation of a piece of code that you write um, at runtime. So let's say, for example, it's not just like injecting a different dependency or something like that and, re- and using a different uh, dependency. It's like, say, for example, you've got a bit of information um, available to you from like a database or from even from like some inputs from a REST service or something like that that says, in this particular instance... Um, this data means that the code does this. Now, you would think that would just be an if statement or something like that. But if you use the strategy pattern, essentially you implement classes that... Each of the implementations are distinct, and they all have something like save or, or you know, retrieve or something like that. It doesn't really matter what the method does execute. It could be anything. But that method is the same on all of the interfaces. And then at runtime, you essentially choose which one of those services to run. You can write it, hard-code it, but you can also use like the service locator pattern or something to retrieve the service or resolve the service or something, and then execute it. So in this particular instance... Um, the specific example here was, do we store this file in a database, or do we store it on the file system, or do we send it to a REST service? So instead of writing you know, a switch statement that did that, you write a, a loop, or sorry, you write a resolver, and then you essentially execute the method after you've resolved the service. And that's it. There's not much more code to it than that. Um, and I I found the name for it finally, so I'm quite chuffed about that. It's called the strategy pattern, and instead of calling everything service, I've actually said that this is the storage strategy, rather than the storage service of of some sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I learned. Very good. So, thank you um, to everybody in Twitch chat as I did say earlier on, and finally, thank you very much, Frank. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Oh, my pleasure.
1: Yeah, Um, thank you for having me. It's been really good.
0: It has. It's been a nice... We don't usually get quite as Technical and nitty gritty um, as we have today, and I'm thankful of that because I like a bit of I like a bit of uh, lower level discussion around uh, around te- you know coding and specifically C sharp, which is nice to nice to speak to somebody else who speaks the same language and writes the same language as me as well. Um, so now is your opportunity. It's a to... Good language it is. It is, and the more I learn about C sharp and the more features they bring out, somebody was saying to me the other day. Um, they came from a Lisp background. I've never used Lisp, so I don't know how awful or good it is. Um, but they um, they were saying, "I hate C sharp because there's so many different ways to do the same thing, and it's like it's a multi paradigm language. That's the point of it. You know, you you you've got almost mm. infinite opportunities to what you don't. You know, can use. There's, there's a load of different ways to do loads of different things in it and the more I learn about it I just feel like that's another tool that I can use in the future if I need it but I won't just use something because it's new yeah. and I love the new language features in C Sharp is it 8 we're on now or is it 9 the latest version I don't know
1: I, think I don't know I, I think it's 8 they come out quicker than I can uh, future yeah,
0: but it, it's not in line always in line with .NET releases either so it's um, I think they're on 8 and there's things like like the record um, properties. I haven't used one yet because I haven't... Unfortunately, all the code I'm writing is in .NET Standard 2, so I can't use them right now. Um, or at least I don't know if I can use them. And I'd love to be able to start using them because they just make my... The amount of code that I have to write when I'm writing like a request or response object much uh, much quicker. Um, but yes, it's uh, it's. I love the language as well. Um, so yes, you now do have an opportunity to pimp yourself... Talk about your company, talk about any side projects oh, you've got or anything yeah. like that. Um, sell yourself to our audience and uh, off you go.
1: <laughs> well, you know, we've been talking about software, but basically um, I solve problems pretty much. is you know, As an engineer, um, I do software, but I also do business analysis. I trained as a project manager. I've done lots of that. I trained as a procurement officer. I've done many things in my professional life, which is why I think... Chris and I share the coding element, but my style is radically different to to his, which is why I've learned lots on the call. If you want to see what I do, it's frankray.net. You know that's my website, and you know it's got a distinctive flavour to it. Um, usually, I've you know the right people come to me at the right times, and I solve the kind of problems other people can't. Which usually has some element of code, but you know it'll be aspects from from those other domains as well, typically.
0: Yeah, and I I like solving like full, you know, not just I'm, I know I talk about code a lot, but I do the same kind of thing as you. And I'm there's something really satisfying about solving problems for for businesses, and that's yeah, why, I agree. That's why I contract, and that's why I'm not a permanent employee with with a one. I agree too. Because I get yep. to see different perspectives, and I get to see different problems everywhere I go. Everywhere it does the same things. Yep. But everyone does it differently, you know? And, and I
1: agree. It's fascinating. We've had a few comments. And you have and, to be at arm's length. You yes. have to be at arm's length to do a good job of actually solving them is what I found.
0: It's a, it's a positive. Sometimes it's a negative, especially when requirements are involved and you have to get down to the nitty-gritty because clients don't always give you the full, um, the full picture. No, of
1: course they don't. <laughs> but I
0: think that's the case anywhere with any any company. But it's still… It's still it's a benefit sometimes being at that arm's length, so you can be objective and you can be the yep. professional providing professional con, you know consulting or advice. And um, yeah, yeah, I yeah. like it. Um, so we've had yep. a few comments. We've had uh, a grateful tomato. I'm not sure if it's, that's someone one of us knows, but uh, welcome, grateful tomato, saying hopefully C sharp doesn't get quite as convoluted as C plus with all the new syntax. That the thing is, there's there's six different ways to, to in C sharp to declare a, a a property getter you know now there's there's a ridiculous amount of ways to do the same thing and that's what my you know my client was on about the other day that there's so many the, sy- the, syn- the syntactic sugar that's been added into c-sharp is cumbersome especially when you see something for um for the first time and you've never seen it before but it's also i like it i like to make the code that i write over and over again as small as i possibly can most of the time, unless it's unreadable, but with that kind of thing, if it's a standard language feature, I actually quite like it.
1: It's also uh, additive, though. You know, I think a lot of what I'm coding is still .NET too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm said I'm in .NET for a while. You don't
1: have to use it.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's. It depends, I think, and because I use ReSharper as well. I tend to get suggestions in ReSharper to tell me to do something. So I learn from uh, okay. just using that tool a lot of the time. Oh, that's a new language feature. Or I get reminded that I can write it in a more concise way um, than I might have previously. You yeah, know. interesting. Um, Volsrat has said thanks for this episode and thanks to Frank for sharing your insights and horror stories, sending you both some C++ love. Wallstripe works in C++ by the sounds of it (laughs) Um, and I don't care what you think about it Chris I don't have a problem with C++ I just don't know it it's completely foreign language to me like literally I've never tried to work with it I've never needed to so I don't know it it's not that I disapprove of it or anything um, and Volstrat's also said, "Agreed, more tech talk." So good. Let's try and uh, get some more episodes in. So, Frank, you are welcome to come back. I will uh, reach out to you again, or you can reach out. Well, to I think I will come back. Set. Yeah, at some point. That'll be very, very yep. good. Uh, I've oh, enjoyed oh, this. Excellent. Um, yep. Okay, so time to close the show. Um, you can visit our website on www.dnistream.live uh, for all links to our social media channels, Discord dev chat, and podcast discovery platforms you can also use it to contact us for any reason if you've got any feedback if you've got any suggestions for the show a funny developer story like we've been sharing today that would be uh, that would be interesting uh, if you want to be a guest on the show as well just get in touch and we'll see if we can get you booked in i say see if we can get you booked in this is our first podcast for a, a fair while because uh, i've been very busy as i said at the beginning of the show um, but we we're always if a guest contacts us we'll always try and schedule uh, to get somebody in um and lastly do not follow do not forget to follow our Twitch channel um uh, which you are probably on right now, but it is twitch.tv forward slash DNI stream so you know when we go live. Uh, we hope to see you all next week at seven PM, maybe if I've got another guest. I've got somebody else who contacted me weirdly today, so you never know we might be back um on uh on our Twitch channel. So all that's left is to say goodbye. Bye all. Goodbye.